Welcome to Defiance. Today I am talking to Molly McHugh, an information warfare expert and foreign policy and strategy consultant. But before we get into the interview, I need to welcome and thank my sponsor Kraken and their CEO Jesse Powell, who are helping make this happen. Kraken also sponsored What Bitcoin Did, my other show which is dedicated to Bitcoin itself, an act of financial defiance. Bitcoin was introduced to the world in 2009 by its pseudonymous inventor Satoshi Nakamoto as a response to the 2008 financial crisis. Bitcoin is a decentralized peer-to-peer digital currency without any central authority. By not having a controlling party required to validate transactions, Bitcoin is both trustless and permissionless. And as Edward Snowden said, Bitcoin is freedom and Kraken is the best place to buy Bitcoin. Consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange, Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy, sell, and trade Bitcoin. You can find out more at kraken.com, which is K-R-A-K-E-N.com. The reason why we fight is to draw attention to issues and to fix it. Resilient, resolute, defiant in the face of impossible odds. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction, and all you can talk about is money. Hundreds of protesters turned out singing Glory to Hong Kong, an anthem of defiance. Good morning, Molly. How are you? Doing well, thanks. Thank you for coming on the show. Happy to do it. Right, so information warfare. Mm-hmm. This is your area of expertise. I've been doing a lot of research. I've got so many questions for you. <laughs> The first starting point for me, it doesn't feel like this is actually anything new. It just feels like there are more advanced tools available. Absolutely. And and I think that's the piece that is sort of the fight and the debate and also like important to understand from the discussions the last few years is the psychological tactics behind all of this are the same. The informational tactics are the same. Propaganda tactics the same. But you put them all in this blender with the power of sort of data-driven targeting on social media and the new ways that you can sort of launder information and hide the origins and hide where it's coming from. And some combination of all of those things is just incredibly effective. Right. So there's going to be a whole bunch of areas I'm going to want to explore with you. But One of the interesting things I was kind of thinking about when I was preparing for this is that, is it a fight against information warfare or is it about educating people about information warfare? And I couldn't figure out in my mind, which is it? Because it feels like something you, you can't actually beat. I think that's right. I think there's, there's sort of a a couple different things in that basket. And I think in terms of defeating it, this idea that there's a counter campaign, no. I mean, once information is in front of you, there's incredibly good studies done of whether it's you know selling you a Cheerio or a sophisticated political argument, the thing you see first, you're more likely to believe. And um, it's really hard to undo that. So I think there is this sort of fundamental truth underlying all of what we're looking at in sort of the information warfare categories where sure you can do your fact check newsletters and you're like debunk the myth things and like send it, but it doesn't really matter because nobody really reads it or absorbs the content of any of that. Once you see something, it is a piece of the truth of your brain. And so I think that there's sort of that whole thing that you need to accept. And then it's, so what do you actually do about that? And what does it mean? And I think the core of that is just, resilience to these tactics is actually knowing what you stand for and what you believe. And there's just been an erosion of fundamental values and beliefs that I think used to be incredibly powerful at pushing back against this, particularly in the West. You see good examples of this in places where there is a more certain sense of history and identity, like the Baltic states, um, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, 
where there's more awareness of information warfare, but also more awareness of who they are and what is bullshit information when it's in front of you. And I just think there's places where we're much less good at this. And I think the United States is a really good example of it because it's a really open, naive, optimistic country, which is actually sort of a good thing a lot of the time. But it's terrible when it comes to providing any sort of resilience or sort of internal defense to propaganda and people trying to influence you with coercive narrative. And one of the interesting things there is obviously in doing my research, a lot of the Information I found was related to what was happening with Russia during the elections. Obviously, you're a specialist in that area. But also, sometimes I really enjoy the synchronicity that life gives you in that a week ago, I discovered the TV show The Loudest Voice mm-hmm. with uh, Russell Crowe mm-hmm. playing Roger Isles. And actually, it was happening internally in the US as well. Many of the tactics that have been employed by Putin have also were employed by Fox News yeah. to, I guess, mislead people and, and create that division Do you see a difference between the two? I think there's a longer-term case study slash analysis of the effect that Murdoch has had on the Anglosphere writ large, um, which I'm not going to go into right now. But but no, there is this... Again, there's sort of these this this commonality of psychological tools that are part of politics, that are part of governing, that are part of marketing, that work really effectively. And But the, the core of what was in the sort of Ailes vision of how to realign conservative thinking in the country is this sort of fear-mongering, identity-based phobias of everything. This idea that if you can convince people of what people are trying to take away from you and talk about it all the time, that it makes them a more compliant, controllable population. It's worked really effectively. And I think you can start, there's sort of a longer term analysis of the US conservative media environment that is really worth doing and having. It kind of started with the wacko bird radio talk show Rush Limbaugh types that sort of then bled into TV news. And that became the next fix was like news got a little crazier on TV. And when that wasn't enough anymore, you have this new ecosystem of, of farther right news emerging, things like One America News Network and Infowars and Breitbart. And it's just sort of when the news no longer feels as extreme as it did, people look for a new outlet. But through the through line of all of that is the use of conspiracy to capture minds and influence people. And it's been an incredibly effective way of, I think, perverting and corrupting the sort of baseline conservative narrative in the United States until you have this chaotic mass that is Trumpism, which has no values and no morals and no real core. It's just a bunch of people who are forced to say yes. Wow. Okay. So there's going to be a whole Sorry. bunch of... No, no, no. It's great. No, but, well, when it, but I think, in fairness, what I should ask at that point is therefore, and you can tell me it's none of my business, but historically, have you voted Democrat? Uh, no, I uh, came out of, I mean, my origins in Washington were at a conservative think tank. Wow, okay, um, interesting. And I supported the Iraq War. I know, I know. But I very much came out of the post-Cold War, freedom in the world, rah, rah, rah mindset that used to be a conservative thing and now is not anymore. But on politics, I'm, you know, personally very progressive, you know, a lot of stuff Obama did was great. I vote both sides, but I don't know how anybody right now could sit in the United States and say that they're a Republican. Well, I think one of the things that I've noticed with this is there are certain people who will vote for anyone as long as they're Republican. They're not going to switch sides and they're in not going to abstain. Yeah, 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 both sides. So really the, the fight is always about the, the middle ground, the, the people you can swing. But it isn't. And that's the thing that's so interesting okay. about the Trump movement 
about the Brexit vote, about the disruptive parties in Europe that are very effectively commandeering governing structures, is that you don't need half, you don't need majority plus one, whatever that is in your country, you need like a radicalized 15%. And if you can get that, you can really effectively disrupt the formation of parliamentary coalitions if it's a parliamentary country, or control sort of narrative within a a core in a non-parliamentary system. And I think that's what's so cripplingly fascinating about the Trump movement, is it really has shown that. Like, if you have a radicalized base, it's much more effective than winning moderates. Okay, we're we're already heading down the rabbit hole with this. And, you know, I, I think it's useful because there are going to be people, people who are going to listen to this who don't know you. So before we start going into the detail, can you just give me your background and sure. how, like, what's brought you to this point now where this is what you do? And with regards to information warfare, where, where do you see your role in this? What, what is it you are... What are your goals? Yeah, Uh, well, in terms of goals, very much helping to expose what's been happening, help people understand what these tools are and how they work so that people can become more critical of understanding how people are trying to manipulate them with information. And that can be governments, it can be adversarial actors, however you want to define that, it can be marketing campaigns, it can be political parties you don't agree with, it can be dark shadowy forces doing all sorts of weird shit. But, you know, the... I think for now that has to be the critical goal is understanding that combining capabilities with older tactics and it just applies behind a whole range of objectives that are not helping anyone. So I think I, I came out of school with a couple of Russia degrees, so useful. I finished my master's degree about a week before 9-11 and came to DC about a week after 9-11 okay. <laughs> because what else are you going to do with your Russia degrees, yeah. right? And then ended up working at a conservative think tank, not because I was actually a conservative, having gone to Stanford, not so much anyone as a conservative in California, but because they were there and they hired me. And since that was right after 9-11, I very very quickly got shifted into working on Middle East, on the wars, and ended up doing kind of Arab democracy and Iraq stuff for about five years. Um, After that, I left, went to work for a small consulting firm, mostly in West Africa. This was sort of the... I just want to get the hell out of DC and do interesting things time period of of my life. And then got recruited to go to a bigger firm. And that kind of got me back into the post-Soviet world because my first big project there was Georgia. So I started working in Georgia just after the Russian invasion in 2008 and was there, sort of left the company I was at at some point, opened my own firm during that time period, but worked with the Georgians until sort of the end of the Saakashvili administration. So during the time period that was the transition from the war to the interlude to the political war against Georgia, where the Gazprom oligarch took over the country. And so then was sort of in the region working with people who were fighting against the Kremlin through this whole period where the Kremlin was sort of testing and adapting its new political warfare tools, including learning social media, learning how it worked, which they very much learned from watching the Obama campaign in 2008, which was really interesting. But um, uh, sort of through that whole period, through Crimea, through some of the actions in, in the time period, and I don't think anybody was really an expert in any of this stuff when in 2010 when all of it started. But if you're there watching what the Kremlin does, you have to learn real fast. So now I try to explain Russian influence to people in a way that makes any sense. <laughs> and what would you say the key differences between, say, what Russia is doing with regards to information and, say, the U.S. is doing? Because obviously the U.S. does have a history of also meddling in elections and, you know, and propaganda. So yeah. what is the key difference here? Uh, personally, what's happening in Russia seems to be a little more sinister. 
Yeah. Well, there's this, how do you define sinister, right? Yeah. And I think for me, the key difference in the, everybody tries to equate, well, everybody meddles in elections narratives is what were the goals? And even if you go to those, I had a radio show with one of these guys once, the academics that do these, well, in fact, you know, Russia has meddled in X number of elections. The United States has meddled in like X minus three numbers of elections. So it's all the same. But when you ask them about goals, well, why were they doing those things? You know, for the most part, what they will say is the United States was intervening in places where they believed there was an interest, you know, sort of promoting a democratic thing or there, you know, but something more along those lines. Not always. Obviously, we have a not great history in Latin America, certainly, but but there is sort of a more ideological approach to who we were supporting and why we were doing what we were doing. I, and I think on the Russian side, it's it, you then the goals are one aspect it is much more sort of transactional, but there's the, but how are they doing it and why? And for the U.S. side, it's, you know, supporting political parties and their own operations sometimes. It's, you know, trying to change systems so that there's more competition. It's helping with information support, whatever, whatever, whatever. But if you look at, for example, what Russia was doing in the United States in 2016, which had different versions of that in the past, it's creating fake outlets to launder information to people so they don't know where it's coming from. It's creating fake narrative to attack environments, to attack opponents, you know, to create false perceptions. So it is this much darker, more sinister basket of things that are not just standard political tactics. It's not just, you know, throw some crap at your opponent the day before the election, hope for the best. But it has a much longer through line of sort of psychology and tactics behind it that is meant to have a, a more devastating in, impact on an environment. Right. We'll get into the 2016 election. One of the things, though, that I noted is that... So I've just been out to Vietnam, mm -hmm. did a tour of the war tunnels, and also got the chance to be shown a lot of the propaganda at the time that the US were dropping over various parts of Vietnam just yep. to try and just to try and spread information. And obviously there is a long history of propaganda mm -hmm. in war. And in my, in my mind, I was thinking, well, what felt like the key difference here is that rather than this being a tool of war this almost is feeling like a proxy war itself. And that Absolutely. information is like a, like you could fight a whole war over information. Is that, is that a fair observation? Absolutely. I think, you know, it, it's sort of hard to separate out information warfare as its own thing, because in any conflict, there is an informational conflict that is happening. Mm. A battle for narrative, a battle for minds, however you want to define it, there is always an information war. And it certainly evolves and adapts in different environments. The pamphlets and leafleting of the old days are no longer necessarily the case, although we still do to use that at a lot of places. But... But yes, there is always an information war. And I think it's always, uh, certainly, I think the if you look at Russian doctrine and Soviet doctrine, there's much more of a focus on this because there is this understanding that as they define it, the spiritual resources of a population matter a lot. If you can't win minds and sort of motivate people, or if you can demotivate a population, you will win. And I think there's always more focus on that in their war doctrine than there is in ours. So you probably took a keen interest in the recent documentary about Cambridge Analytica. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I know a lot of the, the background that went into that, but okay. yes. <laughs> so, so one of the most interesting parts of that whole story to me wasn't Brexit, it wasn't the Trump campaign, it was one actually happened it was in Trinidad, where they actually demotivated mm -hmm. a large part of the population to vote because that was the only way that the, is it the Indian I think so, yeah. Yeah, I'm, the only way, because they, they didn't have enough of uh, enough people to, to win the election. Yep. So they demotivated the population. They had a campaign to not vote, mm -hmm. a campaign of apathy. That, for me, was more concerning than anything else I'd seen Absolutely. on there. And this, to me, seems like the commercialization of information warfare. 
Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, if you look at the what SEL, Cambridge Analytica, was doing, there's a dozen Israeli companies that offer the same types of services. There's some in the U.S. now. There's some in Canada. Like, they all work together. They all contribute to these things. And sort of buried in the marketing materials, somewhere will be some form of behavioral engineering is what they're offering. And I think that's what we need to be so focused on about information warfare, is it is not just putting information into a space, but it is about changing behavior. It is about changing how you make decisions for yourself, changing what you do, how you do it. And and the easier part of behavioral engineering is in fact sort of a suppressive effect, right? Getting you not to do something. Uh, it's so boring. I don't feel like going to vote. There's no one to vote for. They're all, they all suck. All the oligarchs are the same. Whatever version of that narrative in your country, it is way easier to get people to just be cynical and not care than it is to get people really angry or riled up about something. And it's really effective when it comes to places where voter turnout is critical. In the US, for example, in 2016, there's been a lot of very quiet analysis done on the information that was targeting African-American populations, women, others, but sort of uh, the Bernie supporters, but getting people not to vote for Democrats, basically. And there isn't really great analysis of overall impact of that, but significant. Isn't all communication behavioral engineering in some way, though? In some aspect, yes. So, so w- w- how do we identify what is ethical and what's not ethical? And are there any, is there anything here that's actually crossing like a legal line? So there's not great legal frameworks on most of this, which is part of the challenge. In some places there is in terms of electioneering, things that actually are meant for a party for an election, that you know, communications have to be labeled, you have to be open about what you're doing, about what the origin is. But, you know, in US politics with dark money and PACs and whatever, you mm-hmm. know, information can come from anywhere. I think the UK has become fairly similar in terms of the information coming from everywhere. And I think in any environment, you know, there's always a way to inject information into a political discussion that isn't this party wants you to think X. I think the key differences uh, in terms of what is ethical is do people know where the information is coming from? So are they able to evaluate the information being put in front of them with some sort of purpose behind it? Do you understand why X is telling you why? And I think the purpose point is actually far more critical most of the time than truth. If something is true or not matters less than why it is in front of you at a given time. And I think that's kind of the piece that's lacking when you have these weird fake persona communications from social media or fake media outlets or dark money, you know, information campaigns that are all over the place is you don't really understand who is behind them, what they really want to achieve and why they're trying to make you believe what you want to believe. If it's a candidate who tells you I'm supporting, you know, fracking everywhere because we just need to beat the Saudi energy campaign. Fine. At least you understand the motivation of that information. But if it's a, you know, pro-petroleum fracking campaign that's trying to argue something sort of big and ideological, but really it's just about financial gain, that's a very different thing. And, you know, it's so I just think there has to be an openness of sourcing, but I also think the tactics of communication have to be straightforward. And if it's a coercive or potentially manip- deliberately manipulative campaign of information that is either trying to get people to believe things that are not true, that are against their own best interests then that's sort of a totally different category of non-ethical communications. And I really worry that we're getting into this landscape where it's just accepted whoever does this the best will win things. 
and everybody has their own version of Cambridge Analytica uh, or is trying to make one. And that's kind of where we are. Yeah. Th- see, that's where I'm struggling with this, Molly. I'm I'm thinking it does come down to who, who is best at this. I mean, I, I can't... Because you mentioned Trinidad, but like yeah. the, the range of examples that have been not at all documented, but Facebook sits there in their little security room and like watches these campaigns happen in real time. And in many cases has people embedded in those campaigns is like the way that these same tactics that we debate whether they worked or not in Brexit and in the United States or whatever are being used to win African elections in a devastating carpet bomb way because nobody gives a crap and nobody is watching it or documenting it and nobody is arguing like, hey, that's not very ethical, bad government X that you're doing this to your own population. Um, But it is Russian, Chinese, Israeli, mercenary companies, whatever, but there are some private sector, some state-backed resources being put into this using social media to completely co-opt populations. And it is devastating African democracy and nobody gives a crap at all. What What is the goal here? So, for example, I mean, you know a lot about what's happened with the Russia interference in the uh, 2016 election. What is the goal here? It, it Was it they had a preference for Trump to be in power? Or is it more just to create kind of chaos? I think most of the time, and it's a really hard thing for Westerners in general to accept because we don't make decisions the same way, but the goal, first and foremost, is the chaos. It is, can you blow something up and create enough internal, you know, everybody's running around waving their arms, look at the UK now, look at the US now, like governance is paralyzed because everything is just the circus all the time. You know, does that really yield something that the Kremlin is like rubbing their hands together over? In the chaos aspect, yes. You know, it takes adversaries for them off the table. We are not communicating internationally. We are not contributing to the landscape of international affairs the way that we once did. But the chaos is the point. And sometimes it's really hard to accept that that is, in fact, an actual strategic goal is just burning things down, if that's as much as you can get to. If you can, you know, engineer it so you get a favorable outcome or a guy who's in your side, fine. But but the goal is often just to screw up your opponents. But this is state-level trolling. Basically, yeah. It's state-level, state-level trolling. Because trolling. Yeah. the trolls just want to burn everything to the ground. Yes, there's a lot, but there's a lot of this now, right? It's yeah. some anarchist vision of everything is now a very popular way of viewing the world because everything sucks and no one's in control and there's no leadership. And it, the cynicism has become a key part of the system. Well, that's when I started looking at Russia against the US. And then I was like, well, then it happens between Republicans and and the Democrats. And then in the primaries, it can happen inter-party. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm sure within the office of individual representatives at the government. So it's almost at every level this is happening. And my own personal conclusion, and it's not that I've been led to apathy in the same way, <laughs> but I have. I think the only way to play is to not play. It's not to become part of this. Yep. Because something has to change. Absolutely. And, you know, and one of the things I was thinking about is that the real struggle here I struggle with is, is the grey area. So referring back to Roger Ailes and yep. what happened during the Obama campaign, where Fox News specifically referred to Obama as uh, Barack Hussein Obama. Barack Hussein Obama, and they constantly... I mean, I didn't know until I watched this TV series that this was actually part of it, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not, I don't know if I'm being naive to actually what happened or if, if that exactly did happen, but if it did, that is a manipulation. But there's no lie there. Nope, but it is manipulative. Absolutely. But should that be illegal? And does that become does that become censorship? And you get into all these weird kind of areas. So I don't know how things get better. On on the news side in general, there's this editorial issue. And I think 
the further TV news, especially 24-hour TV news, has gotten from the reporting of things to the editorializing of things, the worse this gets. And just the amount of time that is filled with people talking about their opinions of things as opposed to people actually reporting on things absolutely changes what we see and how we focus on it. So news itself is absolutely broken. And I think there's been a lot of discussion on this in terms of the commercial models behind newspapers and why they're all failing. And But there is not enough discussion of it in terms of TV news all being owned by giant corporate, you know, monoliths of some variety that are selling air conditioners or airplanes or something at the top. But just the cycle of news and the lack of responsibility that now goes into it because it's just a profit-based model. And I don't know that there's anything you can really do about it, but you can choose as an individual consumer of information to watch PBS NewsHour and not CNN, MSNBC, or Fox. But the purpose of all of it is to create the short cycle of constant, well, I need to see what the update is. I need to see the thing. I need to stay engaged. So not so different than what social media is doing to your head, but... But news has become entertainment. It's just the circus. Yeah. Absolutely. And people have drawn into personalities, yeah. certain presenters. And they choose who they like, who they really believe, who yeah. they want to watch. You know, they get really offended if you insult Tucker Carlson or whatever. Yeah, it's, it's the circus of media consumption. But uh, at least uh, the one thing you can give Fox sort of credit for is realizing early on that what they were doing was not, in fact, news. So Hannity, Carlson, Ingram, all those people are part of Fox Entertainment. They are not, in fact, part of the Fox News division. Where Others are less honest about this, perhaps, but it's not that the American public really understands that for them. It's all the news, you know. See, this is where I, I'm, I'm getting to. I don't know where you go with this. So say during the next election, you will become aware that the Russians are meddling in the campaign again. Do you educate the Democrat Party about offensive or defensive tactics? Do you educate people about what they should be aware of in, with regards to the news they're consuming? Do you educate Facebook how they're being manipulated? Like, where do you even start with all this? All, I think, a, a key, a huge first step for the next cycle, which is probably the best you could hope for, is improving the way that what is clearly a targeted information campaign of some variety is reported upon. And I mean, past examples of this would include how WikiLeaks has been reported on, you know, when there's a huge giant scandal story, like a giant document dump. Usually the point of the document dump is not actually anything in the documents, which will be like risotto recipes or something, but the big giant, you know, jazz hands story of the dump means something. And I think news has yet to figure out how to report on something without doing exactly what the thing was supposed to achieve. And sometimes there's this skepticism of the story that's really important. I, I just, the, the way that I have had this, I think the best way I can kind of explain this is the philosophical debate I constantly have with reporter friends in DC. There are a number of, I don't know how you want to define them, Russian agents, Russian assets, Russian things, dudes who have been around D.C. a long time with a lot of relationships who have relationships because they launder information. They deal in information. And so if you're, you have no idea why this guy who, you know, was a Russian military officer in the 90s is now living in D.C. as a lobbyist who will hand you a file of information about al-Qaeda-related stuff. But he does. And, but these people build relationships by passing useful information to journalists who are working in these areas. Often has nothing to do with Russia. Who really knows, Right. 
But if you know a Russian intelligence asset is giving you a story, even if you can verify it, even if you know it's true. Why? Right. Is, do you report the story just because it's a story? Or do you report that this is a story coming to you from someone because they wanted it to be a story? Like, is there another aspect to that that you really need to tell? And some reporters are better about dealing with this, with this than others. Some are just like pass through shills of bad information. There's a reporter at the New York Times who has a terrible source of information from Ukraine and he just keeps taking the information and writing about it and writing about it and writing about it. And you can argue with him all you want that like, you're just laundering narrative for the Kremlin, but if it's a story, he's going to write it. And that I think times a thousand is the problem we have with news right now, which is bad actors know how to inject the story, the big glitzy, it's going to co-opt the news for two days story into uh, the television news cycle or into social media in a way that it then becomes the television news cycle. And we have not, really developed good mechanisms for not blowing up the story people want to blow up when it's a purposefully manipulative story. Okay. Wow. Okay. A lot to unwrap there. Sorry. Um, no, no, it's fine. And also one of the, again, interesting things is so much when you start going down this rabbit hole is I started looking into how the Russians respond to anything negative, yep. whether it was the shooting down of the Malaysian jet over mm -hmm. Ukraine, whether it's the annexing of Crimea, whether it was the poisoning of people in the UK in Salisbury. Like there's so many things, mm -hmm. so many bad things but there's always a reason or excuse for something else. There's always a diversion tactic. Mm -hmm. There's almost everything is raised as a potential false flag. Yeah. And I just, I, I don't know. Molly, I start to think what a fucking stupid, crazy world we're in. This is, this is crazy what's going on yes. here. And it seems to me like the Russians are getting away with anything. They're, they've been very good. And again, like I think the, a key thing with all of the Russian stuff is they exploit weaknesses in our own systems really effectively. They don't invent any of this. Like they don't invent our cynicism, but they really know how to get right into the spaces and just rip them apart. And a key one is this one, especially in the post-Iraq war environment or in the post 9-11 environment, but this belief that your own government is a worse thing than adversaries are, which is propagated through Hollywood, through TV, through just about every British TV show. But this like, you know, it'll be like a double super secret layers of conspiracies, like one government agency conspiracy against another government agency conspiracy. But the answer is always that your own government is terrible. You know, all of this sort of feeds into the same environment of self-doubt and cynicism and disaster that we find ourselves in. But I think the Russians have gotten really good at, I mean, they, they, the books are written out. You can find the tactic books of propaganda and disinformation that they have written, like the Soviet ones that have been slightly updated now for the digital age. But, you know, deny, 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 because we, the stupid West, will report the denials as part of our reporting initially, and then it's, you know, just create parallel narrative. You know, it wasn't, the Russians couldn't have poisoned Skripal because they didn't really care about him. You know, it was actually porting down the chemical plant near, you know, some chemical warfare site near where this guy, it was actually some UK thing. It was you to know. divert attention away from Brexit. Right. It was the, exactly, it's just a made up story. It was really the Americans, you know, it was some random dude from Vietnam, whatever. They will just create parallel narrative. 
And the people who want to believe those things will propagate them all online. And to some people, it makes more sense than whatever the obvious truth clearly is. But there's no downside for the Russians. because no, there's no cost to them to do this. No, and every time you, you see it, you're like, I don't believe this shit. Mm-hmm. I know I'm being lied to. There's no downside. There's, you know, it's almost like whenever I look at the responsibility of the UN, I just think it's a, it's a, almost like a handcuffed organization, which, which, can't ever achieve anything. Yeah, no, the entire structure of the UN, I think, pre- prevents it from achieving very much, yes. Um, how big a role has social media played in this, and how much do you worry about them? Have any lessons been learned from what happened with Cambridge yep. Analytica? Are you seeing any any improvements? So uh, the on the first piece, how much does it matter? I think the key difference that social media gives anybody trying to influence anyone is that ability to connect directly to your target immediately. I mean, it's an individual level. If you're looking at it as a warfare tactic, it's an, it's it's a nation versus an individual now, not a society, not a nation. And that is so incredibly difficult to fix, to combat, to defend against. But the the data targeting that that makes this so much more effective, even just the 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 rapid propagation of information in a way you never had before. If you listen to the you know, sort of 1980s, you know, Soviet propaganda defector videos, and they'll talk about sort of the tactics and the playbooks and what they did. And if you're talking about a huge campaign that was meant to move the needle on the political beliefs of a society or something, but they would view it as a generational thing. You would start here, fund some news outlets, cultivate journalists, cultivate believers, find, you know, allies sort of in that area. And slowly over time, you would write stuff, get ideas into the space, blah, blah, blah. And like 15 years later, maybe you have a population that believes in that stuff. You can do that now in six months. And this sort of, that short circuit on the cycle of moving beliefs uh, is incredibly effective. Do you feel there's any need for a change in regulations with regards to social media platforms? <sighs> yes, but I'm not exactly sure how. I think right now we're locked in this fabulously bullshit cycle of the social media execs go, oh my gosh, we didn't know. Just tell us what you need and we'll fix it. And lawmakers who are not tech people at all cannot possibly tell them what they need. So they sit there and there's like this dumb cycle of like everybody pretending they don't know. But I, I'm really tired of the tech execs who know exactly how effective this is because this is what they have been selling to people for the last five years, at the very least, pretending they don't really know how effective this is. Where's your internal research, Facebook, showing exactly how you know how this targeting works? Like, you've done it. You've paid a lot of people to do it. Don't sit there and say, like, oh, we didn't know the Russians were going to do this, you know? I, so I think this, this, like, oh, my gosh, it's our first day, just needs to stop. Like, they need to stop. And, like, this fine that, that Facebook got from the FEC in the United Five States billion. recently, yeah. it should have been $50 billion. It yeah. should have been, like, every free dollar of cash they had. Otherwise, it means nothing to them. And that's where we are, is, like, they're making money off of selling these tools. They know exactly what they're selling. They're going to keep selling them. Like, they'll you know, make some little changes, like, no rubles donations to the U.S. or whatever. You know, they'll make some little changes around the edges, and then only put out enough data to incredibly controlled analytical interests who are reporting on sort of they're now like, you know, look, we're funding researchers to report on what we're doing, but they give them like cleaned data and controlled stuff and nobody really has it except Facebook. And so it's just this, they control because they have so much money, the entire, the entire cycle of criticism against them. And of course, 
political donations to everyone. And I just think no one's really actually, no one really cares about this. And so many politicians now fundamentally believe, or if they themselves do not believe, their campaign managers and their parties believe, we just need to do this the best because this is now you how win. This is now how you win. That I just think there is no one really focused on actually fixing this problem. Yeah, I, I do also worry maybe with the social media platforms that too often they're relying now on AI or algorithms. You know, I listened to the Jack Dorsey interview where yeah. he was talking about censorship, and you know they can't police every single comment, Absolutely. so they're having to rely on algorithms. Do you think that's the same with Facebook? That's why some of them got through? Or do you think they were absolutely complicit and knew exactly what was happening? Well, I think the Facebook cases tend to be different in that they give you a little Facebook person to sit with you and make your campaigns more effective. So they really have absolutely no plausible deniability on any of this because whether you're talking about the Trump campaign or Russian companies or, you know, weird campaigns in Kenya, most of the time there's a Facebook employee sitting there advising these but campaigns. But is, is this some 25-year-old who's helping them set up campaigns and create campaigns who really doesn't have the experience or the skills necessary to understand this is manipulation of the people? Like, but has again, it fallen between the cracks? Sure, but then that's their excuse, right? I mean, yeah. if you look at the, at the Great Hack, at the Cambridge Analytica stuff, and all of these fabulous personalities that have come out of it where like Christopher Wiley, Brittany Kaiser, whatever, where these people made the money and then I'll get to stand outside and go, oh my gosh, like what we did was so bad, but like we're going to set up another company and do it again. Well, so Brittany's becoming a activist for privacy. Sure. But. How do you feel about that? But I'm always, I'm always up for a good redemption story. I, I think in general, there needs to be accountability for what people have done. And I think in general, especially if you're, if you've spent any time in Silicon Valley, you know, the mindset there is not, should you, it's, can you, and that will always drive innovation everywhere in science and everywhere else. But I think this entire, like the entire Silicon Valley, once it becomes information, once it becomes data, you know, driven, everything is so unethicked. There has never been, you know, a first meeting of like all the geneticists who got together and kind of made a loose code of conduct because they knew it was going to freak everybody out. And, you know, you needed to have some parameters that you're operating inside or your entire science was going to be thought of as like weird kooky shit. That's never happened with Silicon Valley. There are no ethic. There is no ethical code. There are no morals that they operate by and on data, sort of data harvesting, data targeting, data profiling, surveillance state, you know, everything on up to China's social credit system, there has been very little accountability for the dystopian level of reality that they are building, mostly because they know no one understands it or what it really means. And by the time we get there, it's kind of too late to undo it. They get around a lot of this by then trying to become useful to police and governments. And, you know, they're very effective at doing that. And in the U.S. right now, there's been not a lot of attention to the fact that in the mass shooting environment that we now inhabit that there are more people using sort of social media information combing tools to target potential threats um it's not always people that are reported by neighbors or friends or loved ones who are like hey johnny's gonna go shoot somebody up and no one cares because we're so tired of the mass shooters but predictive policing is incredibly creepy and 
we need to pay more attention to all of this stuff. That's a minority report. Yeah, but it's now, it's totally accepted. And in the US, you have Amazon doing some aspects of it, Palantir, which is Peter Thiel's creepy company. There's at least two more that have these enormous, and for them, it's like, oh, we're going to give you our free thing, get like all of the data that we're using to train our algorithms and blah, 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 blah. But um, this is a conversation that, everybody really needs to be involved in. And usually it's one police commissioner or like a city council guy somewhere who signs these contracts. But when we're getting to the level of predictive policing, of whether or not you believe, uh, if data can show a person is has a predilection to commit a crime, this is completely anti-democratic. And we need to have national debates about this. And we're just not there. And I think that's like the far offshoot of social media targeting you with ads. But it's very much in the same bucket of things. Um, you know, what characteristics do you present online that can be used to target you with stuff? And none of that, like no piece of that spectrum has been discussed in any real way by anyone. So how, how do you change this then? How do you, how do you make the debate happen? Because you know, I think we are... need some defectors, right? Maybe it's right. Brittany Kaiser, maybe it's someone else. But you need more people who have been in this to come out and say, you know what, the money from this isn't actually the most important thing. Like, we can either use these tools responsibly or we can all become the China surveillance state. And I don't really think, I mean, if we're looking at the Brave New World 1984 Fahrenheit 451 universe, right, none of us are the guy who's on the outside, like, holy shit, the system's going to kill us, right? We're all the people consuming the four-walled TV, like, complacent to the environment that we now live in. And we need to stop that because we're really at the edge of this thing where a tech data driven universe becomes a kind of dictatorship we have anointed ourselves into, or we can continue to live in free societies. And right now we're silently making that trade of giving up freedoms for stability, for products, for communication, for whatever, and not really understanding what that trade is. Um, Why is there so much apathy? Because... We're all aware of what's happening. That's not true. I think if you ask uh, an average person in the middle of a country somewhere, do you understand that all these free services you think you're getting are actually, like, you're paying for it with data? Like, you're paying for it with your privacy? Like, people don't understand any of that. But what my point being is, like, how many people will watch The Great Hack on Netflix, but they won't close their Facebook account? Oh, yeah, a lot. Yeah. Because you don't want to give up your stuff. Yeah. Exactly. So I, I feel like, you know, we talk about this dystopian future. Like, there's essentially a dystopia now like yeah there's weird stuff happening especially when you talk about the social credit scoring in in china i feel like i feel like black mirror is becoming it's like behind it's like two it's like two generations behind what china is doing yeah yeah but some of the shows are kind of like predictive for the future you know all this stuff's happening and yet a lot of people just don't care they're just they're just kind of accepting it what why is that and I think partially it's because stuff is easy. It's been a, and, and this sounds terrible, but like been a long time since we had a really big war where you had to have a war garden and like give up your tires for your car and not have sugar. Like that doesn't happen anymore, right? We live in wealthy, comfortable societies where even if we're at war, we personally do not feel it at all. And I think that when you're in that kind of environment, it's the vast majority of people focus on their own fence. You know, is my family doing okay? Am I doing okay? Are we okay? Is everything all right? Then fine. Like, I don't really have time to fight these other fights. And that's fine. Like, that's how society works, right? People focused on little communities that work well together. But right now we're just lacking the big level leadership that used to ask these questions, that used to care about these things. Like, there's not a Churchill or a Roosevelt in the wings anywhere that I can see. And there's 
there's just like we're faced with these huge challenging questions and if we go into this era where we're looking at climate change at you know huge population issues but at the at the, the century where ai becomes a thing where genetic engineering and cloning and like all sorts of things that can be wonderful or fucking terrifying yeah you know we're at the edge of all of these huge the end of work you know what are we going to do with all these freaking people when nobody needs to do stuff anymore we're at the edge of all of these really big questions. I'm sure every generation feels this way, but we're at an accelerated exponential scale of this that we've never had before, where right now, countries like Russia and China really want you to believe you can tackle all of these challenges better with central control because screw the people. The people are going to make the wrong decisions for themselves, but a centralized authoritarian thing can do it much faster and more effectively. And you see this even from green groups that are like heralding China's, you know, steps to combat climate change where it's like, are you freaking kidding me right now? But the problem is that view of it would actually be better if there weren't the people, if only a few wealthy, smart, talented people made all the decisions for everyone is very much echoed by the new Uber elite that never existed before guys like, Bezos is not so bad, but like guys like Thiel and the Facebook guy and whoever else who have silly money, who have, I can go live in space if I feel like it money, who really believe that democracy is dumb, that people are never really going to make the right decisions for themselves. And that at some point, like the smart, wealthy people who actually have a stake in this game are going to need to get together and make all the decisions for everybody else. And that's going to be the future. We're at the edge of this, of this being a real thing. And people need to understand what that means, which is like... Soylent Green becomes more of a reality, right? But this idea of, like, who's making the decisions about population reduction, what does that actually mean? This is something we all need to be engaged in. And and it's a very real, like, our, like now, like, us, our generation, our children discussion. And I just think nobody is really focused on how close we are to to beyond dystopia. I don't know what the next step of, of apocalyptic dystopia is, but we're pretty close. I do find Peter Thiel concerning. I mm-hmm. mean, mm-hmm. I watched the documentary how he mm-hmm. shut down Gorka and, you know, like uh, I don't support all of Gorka's news mm-hmm. and editorial choices. I think some of the content they put out was terrible and, and just a bit shitty. But at the same time, I think you have to support a free press yeah. and he closed down a free press. So I find Peter Thiel concerning. Oh, and also he supports a lot of guys that are really big on genetic profiling. Yeah, it's very weird. Well, so quite interestingly, on my other show, I just interviewed a chap named Balaji Srinivasan. Mm -hmm. Do you know Balaji? Okay, so he's a Silicon Valley investor. Mm -hmm. He's involved in Coinbase and Dreesen Howitz. An interesting part of that conversation that we had, you might actually quite enjoy it, is that he talked about social media CEOs becoming in the future becoming de facto heads of state because they have the ability to control so much of the narrative absolutely so much of the message zuckerberg believes this now i think dorsey is a weirdo who doesn't really focus that much on it but but you see this in zuckerberg and how he he like try sometimes he tries to reinvent himself there was this moment where he was trying to become a political thing in the u.s which just failed miserably but you know i think there's a point at which you realize well, I already control so much more than a government would do. I think Facebook, I don't know about the other ones. Facebook 100% understands our competitor is not other another company. Our competitor is governments. And they act like it the way that they act in Washington, the way that they act other places. 
Um, and it's absolutely something we need to pay attention to. I think Google and, and Amazon are of scale to that, but act in different ways. But Facebook is a very challenging one. And you're exactly right because of this narrative piece. It's not just the data. It's not just everything else. It's, it's this, I mean, Facebook is not trying to do deals with, with the American government. It is not providing cloud services for, for anyone, you know, it's this totally separate thing. Zuckerberg very much believes it should be a separate thing. He believes it should be as powerful as it is. But, you know, there's a, there's a clear vision behind this, this idea of sort of a supranational structure that's more important than nations. And he talks about it very openly. Have you followed the Libra announcement and what's yes, going on there? Yes, a bit. I mean, I don't know all the details. I know that, like, no one thinks it's a good idea except <laughs> Facebook. But um, but one of the quite interesting things there where you've talked about them being separate for government is that they probably won't be able to launch this without having some relationship with the government. It's almost certain they won't. And I feel like the U.S. government is in a tricky position because if they don't allow this, they're given a head start to WeChat and Alipay. So there needs to be some form of digital currency, which is probably a corporate currency rather than a government currency to compete with that. And they're in this very tricky position. I don't know that... I don't know how this is being evaluated yeah. in the U.S. I know it's... In general, there's extreme cryptocurrency skepticism in, in officialdom in the United States. I... Th I think if you give Facebook a framework through which it can evade international banking of any kind, that uh, we're entering a, a new realm of, of dystopian stuff. I, you know, yes, I understand this exists in China and other places. And, and again, no one really understands why it's important. Fried Zakaria, who is, you know, a huge tech junkie in many respects, like four or five months ago, but did a segment on one of his shows about it's so great that China has become a cashless society and everybody just pays with their phones. And he did this whole thing, like not mentioning the fact that it's contributing to social credit scoring, that when government can evaluate if you're eating a lot of takeout or like buying groceries and cooking at home, and that somehow affects your health insurance costs. Like this is not actually a world we want to live in where like, China has decided you play too many video games and aren't a good citizen and you have to sit at the back of the train and pay more for your ticket. Like, what the hell are you talking about? But aspects of that are being normalized in how we interact with things already. And uh, How widespread is the social scoring system in China right now? I mean, it's they're, they're saying it's rollout phase, but one would assume that every Chinese person has a social credit score that all of that data is being collected and used to feed into those algorithms and that every foreigner that has ever been in China has some aspect of a score from the data that's been collected on them. Is there any pushback coming on this at all? I mean, China has 2 million Uyghurs in, quote, re-education camps that is partially linked to the way that they're doing the social credit system and nobody gives a crap. Yeah. Okay, so I can't finish the interview without asking <laughs> another thing, though, because... I'm preparing and researching, you've obviously been subjected to your own form of information warfare. Oh yeah, the Kremlin doesn't like me so much. Yeah, so they got like, lots of people that write about me all the time. So quite interestingly, when I first started researching this interview, the first thing I do is put your name into Google. And first thing comes up is a medium yeah. blog a medium about blog, how I'm yeah. a crazy charlatan. So yeah. at first I was like, oh God, who is this person why am i interviewing i know and then, i really should spend more time caring about my own seo but i just don't <laughs> no, but, but the thing is then, then obviously i've spent time looking a little bit deeper doing some more research and and 
but you've been subjected to your own. What is that like? It's not fun. I, did you watch Chernobyl? Yes, the, I did. Fantastic. So amazing. I know yeah. no one can stop talking about it in, have in you, my part of the world. But uh, Have you been onto YouTube and watched the old footage from the time? Uh, that's what blew me away, the actual similarities. They did, they did such a good job with the visualization of that show, with the writing of the show. I mean, just... I can't say enough good things about that show. Yeah, it Russia's going to make their own version. But in like the four, oh, pff, of course they will, the version where it was a secret, like the, the, it was the CIA blowing up a secret lab under Chernobyl. Yeah, sure. It was sabotage. It was all sabotage. Uh, I have a funny story about that, actually, that relates to information warfare. But in, I think it was in the last episode, but it was, you know, sort of after the trial and the whatever and sort of the internal thing that was happening, they sort of take the guy away and someone explains to him you know, no, we don't want you to be a martyr. It's much more effective if we just disgrace you. Like, we will discredit the hell out of you, and that's much more effective for us. And that's totally true, and the Kremlin knows it. And, like, the, you know, the Russian-on-Russian violence is something we talk about a lot. Like, the number of dead Russians that just turn up everywhere having committed suicide by stabbing themselves 56 times or shooting themselves twice in the back of the head. Like, sure, it's a suicide. And nobody really cares because it's Russian-on-Russian, and we're not going to get into that. But it's very hard to replicate that with foreign opponents. And that's where you see, I mean, at times you'll see things like Bill Browder, like others, where they'll just embroil them in these legal scandals forever until everybody sort of assumes, well, Bill Browder must have done something wrong or there wouldn't be all this. But we like him anyway, you know. But you sort of erode the narrative on the people over time. But disgracing opponents or discrediting opponents is far more useful for them than creating martyrs. Of, of whatever ilk. I don't necessarily mean dead, but this like eroding confidence in people who stand against them. And it's consistent. I mean, they're very consistent about attacking people that talk about what they do, that explain how they do it, that explain why it's effective, that are listened to by serious people. And that bothers them. It has always bothered them. When I worked in Georgia, they couldn't figure out why the Georgians listened to me because who the hell am I? I'm not a former something. I didn't work in government. Like it bothered them, but they kept quiet because they didn't know who I was. And when I got a little more exposure on what I was doing, they just went after me. And they can. I'm not an institution. I have no protection. You know, there's no one who's going to come out and defend me. So getting stupid guys to write stupid blogs, whether they understand why they're doing it or not, constantly updating it with like updates on whatever shoes I'm wearing that day or something uh, is a way to sit there and create the narrative on your opponents so that people Google it and just say, it's not like they really care if you believe I'm a charlatan or not. But they do care if the initial impression is like, ugh, we just don't want to deal with this shit. And I get that a lot, where like, there's a bunch of projects and things that I should have, that I should be working on, that I should be contributing to, and the answer is essentially like, we really don't want to deal with the level of shit we're going to get from them, so we're just like, not, not going to do it. What's the level of shit I'm going to get after this? Then? Um, it depends, <laughs> you know. Uh, I think for you, if you're just putting out a thing, it'll probably be okay, but you'll probably get trolled a bit on social media. But if you were offering me a job of any variety, there would suddenly be dozens of people calling you explaining why I'm a charlatan and a fraud. And it does get really frustrating because there's not much you can do about it except work with people who know you, except find references who can, who can you know, push back against that. But it's incredibly damaging. They know exactly how effective it is. And they will. But the thing that I think is so amazing about it and the point I'm constantly trying to make to people is who the fuck am I? Like that they have this much time and energy to spend on narrative about who I am when I'm just a person who has firsthand experience standing against Kremlin aggression campaigns across the region, working with people who are in the middle of the shit all the time, which is how I've learned what I know. But I'm not 
an important person in the sense of someone they should be spending this much time on, but they will, and they will do it for someone much less important than me because they can and they don't care and they would rather that everybody be confused and in the circus. But the amount of resources that are dedicated to every level of narrative against opponents, against critics, is absolutely flabbergasting. And when you understand the deep pile of shit that Bill Browder has been under for the last decade, Imagine trying to do that with no resources, without having a half a billion dollars, and that's like working against Russia ever. And they know that by creating this environment, most people will just choose not to, or won't write the article they should write, or won't really say the things that they should say. And um, it's effective. It's really effective. It, it certainly is effective. You know, I, I had the recommendation to do the interview. I'm like, yes, of course I want to do this. <laughs> I saw you on stage in Oslo with Gary. I was like, definitely want to speak to Molly. I start doing my research and it just threw in that doubt. I was like, oh, hold on. What about this? I don't know about this. Yeah, maybe so, I'm a crazy person. Yeah, exactly. I could be a total crazy person. You, you maybe are anyway. You could, you could be crazy and still write about this. So, okay, look, this has been great. For, for anyone listening <laughs> to this, like a lot of people, this might be brand new to them. They might not have, you know, people are aware of what's going on, but they might be to the extent where they, they are now self-aware. They want to be aware of the fact that they might be being targeted. They yeah. might be, what can people do? What can, how can they actually educate themselves better on this? I think sort of reading more about these subjects, understanding the weird, whatever aspect of this interests you the most, whether it be the propaganda aspects or the information aspects, or the data aspects or society falling apart aspects. But the nexus of all of these things right now is so powerful and in the sense of the landscape exists for the worst actors, however you want to define that. It's not just countries, it's not just terrorists, it can be political parties, it can be super malign, totally soulless, mercenary-like actors, guys like Eric Prince, whoever, Wagner, however you want to define that. The worst possible actors are the most active and enabled in defining the space. And there is an absence of moral, ethical leadership in understanding these critical juncture points that we're at in trying to define what is ethical AI, what is the ethical use of data, what is the ethical use of, of people's information, which is essentially our labor. Like, there is no labor anymore. It is just data. It's all being taken from us for free and creating tremendous amounts of wealth for other people who are then defining the societies that we live in and the rules that we need to play by. And I think having any vague leader that would explain any of those dynamics in a, in a helpful and clear way would be great. But in the meantime, people need to understand that for themselves and just understand um, that this is an incredibly powerful system of control and not just mental manipulation, but of controlling people and populations. And looking at the Chinese social credit example is one piece, but then applying that to your own reality. You know, if your healthcare provider is giving you discounts for entering when you're going to the gym or wearing a physical tracker device on your wrist uh, or whatever. That's exactly the same thing as social credit. And I think just understanding the way that you fit in data harvesting systems and what that is doing to society. You don't really need your Alexa listening to you all the time and you don't really ring, need that ring doorbell that is, you know, providing information to police officers. Like, you don't need these things. You don't need to volunteer to be part of the police state that companies want to create. I just think we're not aware of that. We're really excited about technology and convenience. And I think understanding that there's trade-offs that you pay for that is sort of a first critical step. 
but understanding more about the space and choosing leaders who are effectively going to be in that space and helping to define the societies that we're going to live in. Because right now it's just a bunch of clowns sitting around having the loudest party. Um, and we need people who are, who are capable of understanding these juncture points that we're at and also providing leadership through them. Amazing. Okay. And if people want to follow your work, where can they do that? Uh, the best thing is I'm on Twitter at Molly McHugh, M-O-L-L-Y-M-C-K-E-W. That's the easiest way. Right. And I will share that out in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Thank you for helping me understand this. Uh, I hope it helped. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Defiance. I do want to just say a massive thanks to Molly for agreeing to come on the show and also a thanks to the team at the Human Rights Foundation for helping me coordinate this when I was out in Taiwan. 